Thank you, Matt. Morning, team. How are we doing? All right. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if I've not met you, I'm Chris. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I've had a lot of coffee today, so we're going to just hang on tight and, uh, and see what happens. Uh, if you're uh, visiting with us, we're really uh, in the middle of, of two conversations over the past month. Um, one is what is the biblical mission and purpose of the church? Biblical mission and purpose of the church. That's a pretty big convo, a lot involved there, okay? Um, and the second one is how do we feel called here at this church to articulate and fulfill that purpose as a smaller, tangible, um, local expression of the larger body? That's just a big macro question, small micro question. On the, on the smaller scale, on our local scale, the sentence that we've landed on as a group of friends to guide our pursuit in the fulfilling of that mission and purpose is to be a people declaring and delighting in the beauties of Jesus, which means everything we do Every class, every small group, every event, every sermon, every song. The question is, by you participating in this, is it growing you, pushing you, helping you to be the kind of person who has the capacity to delight in God and declare his goodness to the earth? So we've been looking at this conversation from kind of a 30,000-foot level. Last week, we neared it into the word delight. And uh, so let me just catch you up to speed just a little bit. Uh, last week, basically, we said some people have the capacity to delight in God and, and, and some don't. And, and the claim was that those who routinely choose to believe and worship are those uh, Christians who are filled with joy that is explicitly Christian. So we, we talked about that a lot last week. And those who don't are Christians who are, are not filled with that explicit joy. So you may call yourself a Christian, but you don't have the joy that is explicitly Christian, joy because worship doesn't make sense to you and you, you doesn't, you know, right? So we talked about the nature of what is that joy that is explicitly Christian. And I just want to dovetail um, into that by adding something to it. We've chosen the word delight intentionally. We've chosen that word on purpose because uh, when, we, when we talk about uh, knowing and rejoicing in uh, the truths of God, we, we aren't just talking about intellectual assent to an idea. This is very important for us to understand. We, we aren't just talking about agreeing with a Christian worldview or mentally affirming a theory about the nature of God. Uh, we're, we're talking about the ability to delight, adore, savor those truths. So the question is, do these truths bring life and light to your bones, or are they dead on the table? Like a proverb in the mouth of a fool, right? Like a hanging limb that doesn't work, right? Because, this is why this is so important, apparently your salvation is, is uh, more about whether or not you can delight in those truths more so than whether or not you simply know those truths. And here's why. In the New Testament, it is full of demons who know that Jesus is the Son of God. Can I, let me prove it to you, all right? Luke 4.41, and the demons also came out of many saying, you are the Son of God. No one else knew that at the time. Everyone was wondering, no, I don't, you know, I mean, even I mean, Messiah, you know, right? And Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ, James 2.19, you, be, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Okay, so does believing that Jesus is the Son of God make you a Christian? 
I mean, if it does, then those demons are Christians, and maybe they just had a really bad day, right? So, okay, thanks, Chris, for ruining my theology. Yeah, what's it mean? What's it mean? Well, it means that Christianity just isn't just about seeing and acknowledging truths about God. It means that saving faith, faith that saves, is seeing those truths as the most worthy, most life-giving, most abundant, more to be desired than wealth or power or prestige. It means seeing God as the most supreme treasure and having such reverence and wonder and respect for who he is that you'd willingly sacrifice all of the tre treasures to have him. So that's, that's saving faith, see? You can see God's truth and know it and shudder, or you can see God's truth and fall down and worship. It's why Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a treasure surpassing worth. It's why Paul said crazy stuff like, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them rubbish that I may gain Christ, right? See, it's not a matter of knowledge, y'all. It's a matter of affections. Taste and see what? Taste and see that God is what? Good. It's seeing him as good. We just got to, I know we're all, I mean, most of us probably, maybe call yourselves Christian in this room. The idea that the creator of the earth, huh? The earth, the world. You live in the same world I live in? The idea that that dude's good, like there's some, there's some obstacles in the way. Are we chatting? There's some obstacles in the way to saying the guy who created all this, something's wrong, all right? Huh? Let's talk about the faith that is necessary to say he is good. Taste and see the Lord is good. It's a, salvation is a matter of experiencing God as good, surpassing all worth, right? Not just mentally agreeing. That's delighting. But this week we move to declaring, okay? Now, if you've been with us a long time, we've talked about this ad nauseum, okay? <laughs> we've asked this question a million times. What is the declaration of the church? What's the flag? What's the hill we die on? What's the primary message of the church in the Bible? And the reason we've talked about it so much is because the tendency of the church and our own hearts to be hijacked by other causes, other declarations, other purposes and missions, and confusing our own personal agenda with God's. Happens all the time, every day in the church, right? C.S. Lewis said, most of us are not really approaching the subject, Christianity, in order to find out what Christianity says. We are approaching it in the hope of finding support from Christianity for the views of our own party or personal agendas, right? Or cultural agendas, right? We are looking for an ally when we are offered either a master or a judge, Christianity, C.S. Lewis. So we, so we have to admit, when it comes to looking for the primary declaration of the church, our agendas can color that pursuit and lead us in unhealthy, unbiblical alleyways. Okay? So today, to answer the question, I want to answer it in a different way than I've ever answered it before. What is the overarching declaration of the church? What is the overarching declaration of the church? And I want to answer that question. Um, I want to let Jesus answer that question by telling us what he thinks the overarching declaration of the entire Bible is. Entire Bible. You guys ready? Entire, we're going to go through the entire Bible. You ready for this? You guys should just like get me out of here. Okay. So to do that, we're going to start in Luke 24, 44, what, what we read earlier. I'm going to read it to you again, and we're going to see what Jesus thought the overarching proclamation of the entire Bible was. I am so excited right now. I don't know. Okay. According to Jesus, y'all, the entire Bible is about one thing. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me 
in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Three parts. Okay? Must be fulfilled. This is the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms is a three-part collection of how the Hebrew people uh, talked about the Old Testament. The entire Old, same Old Testament we have today. We called it the Tanakh, all right? So uh, it's the Torah, that's Moses, the Nevim, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which is the writings, which includes poetry and wisdom, literature, and a few others. That's how they refer to the entire Old Testament, right? So Jesus is calling to mind the entire Old Testament, okay? And he's saying, it's all written about me. Everything. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Real quick, when Jesus says scriptures, what is he referring to? The Old Testament. New Testament hadn't been written, bro. Okay? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written. What's he referring to? Old Testament. That the Christ should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses to these things. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city to you, clothed from power, with power from on high. According to Jesus, the first three-fourths of your Bible is about one thing. You know, the majority, the, like if you hold the book, the majority of the book, the part of the book you probably don't read. Because God seems harsh and punitive, right? And does any of that still apply anyway? Yes. That portion of the Bible, according to Jesus, is about one thing. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to him, thus it is written. The Christ should suffer, right? Apparently, Jesus thinks the whole Old Testament is about one thing. Really, about one person. The person who Jesus calls the Christ. Did you catch that? He calls him the Christ. Which, uh, by the way, uh, if you're, uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name. I know we often think Mr. Christ, you know, we often think that Christ is a title. Do you know what Christ means? Anointed one. It means the anointed one, Cho what's, chosen one, elected for a specific. When you call Jesus the Christ, it is a confession of faith. We don't, we don't know that, do we? No, you're saying you're the guy when you call him the Christ. It's a title. It's a title that goes all the way back. The anointed one, all through the Old Testament, is a confession that he's the one. The one to do what? The anointed one for what purpose? Well, apparently, Jesus says the purpose is clearly spelled out in the Old Testament. All of it. All right, so, so here we go. Real quick, I'm a Bible nerd out on you for a second. All right? So if we can just hang with me for a while, let's, let's do this. If you read in the Old Testament, okay? Just read it through. There is a pretty easily discernible pattern that emerges. And it goes something like this. Let's show that slide. God creates an Eden-like blessing and abundance for his people. So whether that's by creating or rescuing his people from slavery or bringing them into a good land or establishing a covenant, it devolves pretty quickly, normally, into violence and bloodshed and injustice and violence and bloodshed cry up to God. It rises up to God. It's the same language every time, Okay. God then sends a rescuer, a representative who is rescued or is the means of rescue for a whole people group or a person. And that anointed one always acts as a mediator in one way or another. They, there's always this point of intercession for the people. And then number four, the Eden blessing that was lost is restored in some way. Whether it's a covenant or a gift or peace or a kingdom. Okay, so let me, I'm just going to give you a few examples of this because if we can do all of them, we'll be here all day, all right? Genesis, first example. God creates what? Eden, perfection, 
Eden blessing. Humanity really quickly opts out, can't get three chapters in, uh, and decide that they know better than God about what's right and wrong, right? Something really important happens here at the beginning of all things, okay? God, when, as soon as it goes south, man, right, God promises there's going to come someone, the seed of the woman, who's going to address the deception of the snake, and he promises this person, they're going to be wounded. They're going to be struck. It's the, the word is bruised. It's, they're going to be fell upon. Someone's going to fall upon them. But that person, they're going to bruise the snake's head. So the snake's going to get the, the brunt of that interaction. But, but he ain't going to get out. The, this guy's not going to get out clean. He's going, he's going to get wounded, all right? Very beginning of the Bible, okay? What happens after this? What happens after Genesis? Cain. What does Cain do? Murders his brother. You guys, remember, you guys go to Sunday school? You guys go to Sunday? Remember the felt boards? Remember the thing? Yeah. He murders his brother. His brother's blood does what? Cries out to God. Cries up to God. Okay, so, so then go out. Uh, their descendants, their descendants build all these uh, bitty, uh, cities, right? Violent cities, if you look at it. They're violent cities. The guy, the little mech, he's kind of the guy. He's like, man, I killed a man for wounding me, right? Just violent dudes building these cities, all right? And then God chooses a rescuer. You know who it is in the beginning? It's, his name's Noah, who's rescued through the waters, all right? And so basically God's like, we're going to try this again, all right? And if you remember, remember the Noah story in the boat, the boat and thing and everything? Else, right? okay. What's the first thing Noah does when he gets off the boat? He acts like a priest. He, he offers a sacrifice, acts like a mediator, and then God makes a covenant. He says, never again. Never going to do this again. This is Genesis 8 and 9, right? And the covenant is identical to Genesis 1 language. Identical. Be fruitful, multiply. Okay, the blessing is restored. And so you're thinking, maybe Noah's the guy. He restored the blessing. Maybe he's the snake crusher, right? Well, he pretty quickly blows it, exposes himself, gets naked before his family. It's a really weird story. And what does God, what does God give as a, a sign of the covenant? Remember Noah? What does God give as a sign of the covenant? Rainbow. rainbow. Okay, the Bible doesn't actually say rainbow. It just says bow. You know what a bow is? A bow and arrow. That's the, that's the word. There. We put rainbow in because that's what they mean. But the word there is bow. As if the next time someone takes the fall, where, where's that bow pointed? To heaven. Next time someone takes the violence of men upon them, it's going to be me. It's God's promise, man. In fact, if you look at the language of the covenant that he makes with Noah, he says, you know what? Men's hearts are evil all the time. Therefore, I'm never going to do this again. Why did he do it in the first place? Because men's hearts were evil all the time. He's saying, you haven't changed. Nothing's changed. The cycle's going to repeat. And one day, I myself am going to take the blow. I will be struck. Guys, the Bible, y'all. God, crazy. All right, so it's up towards God. Same language, okay? Okay. Um, where are we at? I just, sheesh. Okay. Never curse the ground. Because you use your path of the Lord's soul of wickedness. Okay, same. All right. Not too long after Noah, um, so his fan blows it, right? Going through the whole Bible. I love this. Then um, his descendants, the descendants of Noah filled this tower called Babel. Remember that one? Yeah, Tower of Babel. You ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? Heard of Nineveh? All descendants of Noah built those cities, Okay. And, and the, the violence of God, the violence of men rises up to God. And then God sends, guess what? A rescuer. And what's his name? Abraham. Remember Abraham? Father Abraham. And what is he chosen for? What's the covenant of Abraham? To restore blessing. 
right, to all generations, right? And so you're thinking, man, this, this might be the guy. In fact, Abraham has this really interesting story. In Lot, uh, for Lot, his, you know, Lot, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, he intercedes for the city. Remember? You remember that bit? He steps into this priestly role of intercession for, for this. Hey, 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 God, if 50 righteous, would you kill? Okay, what about 40? 30? 10. All the way down. God, yeah, 10, right? He rescues Lot, right? But then, so you're thinking, man, maybe Abraham, I mean, maybe he's the guy. But then he does, you know, he, he, he screws it up later. Big time, lies about his wife twice. Apparently he's a coward, okay? But he does te- pass this really important test of obedience about his son. Remember, what is his son, Isaac? Remember that thing? Remember? You know, sacrifice his son. And what happened to the last second? Sacrifice his son? He says, oh, don't, don't sacrifice your son. In fact, sacrifice this what? L- it's a lamb. It's a boy, it's a boy lamb, right? And that place was called the Lord makes a way. And or you could say, the Lord will see to it. That's what that place is called. So Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, all this, you know, uh, Joseph saves Egypt, you know, or not saves Egypt. Well, he does save Egypt and his family. You remember all this story? You guys remember this stuff? Have you read the old, have you read the, dude, it's crazy. It's crazy, right? Go to Joseph and he's in Egypt, right? But then, uh, all, the, all the Hebrew guys go to Egypt. That's how they get there because Joseph kind of rescues them, right? But then Egypt oppresses and does violence against the, that violence rises up to God. And then a chosen one comes. What's his name? Moses, dude, foreshadowing all over the book of Exodus, like blood on the doorpost. Come on, man, like all over the book. So Moses is chosen to lead the people into freedom from slavery. But when he gets out, God makes a covenant with the people. You remember what that covenant's called? The law. It's, it's the Ten Commandments. It's literally marriage vows between the people of God and God. I'll be faithful to you. You be faithful to me. And the first thing they do, I mean, like the, the thing's just made. First thing they do, break the first vow. First thing they do, right? And God's like, God literally says, Moses, dude, step aside, Mo. I'm going to burn these fools up. We'll start over with you. You know what Moses does in that second? He intercedes. Ha, it's crazy. He prays for the people in their sin. And he, said, and he, and he, he gives God two reasons not to kill them all. He says, well, number one, it's going to be a PR issue, Lord, because you just got us, you just got us out of Egypt. And then the Egyptians are going to be like, what? Yeah, you know? And then number two, he says, also, Lord, you remember Abraham? You promised that you'd bless the nations through his offspring. How are you going to do that if you kill us all? You know, you know and actually, this is, this is cool, man. In Exodus 32, 32, Moses offers his own life in the place of the people. Man, who's done that? Wow. And God relents. He's, he, God it says he, God changed his mind. Do you know God does that? He changed his mind by being the same. He changed his mind by being faithful to his covenant. It says the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoke of, spoken of bringing on his people. God renews his covenant in Exodus 34. <laughs> renews the covenant, man. Renews the marriage vows right after they had. Come on, man. Okay. Um, and it's after this that Moses' face uh, shines. So, so maybe Moses was the guy. I mean, this is big. I mean, out of slavery? Come on. He's got to be the snake crusher. He's got to be the one who restores blessing, right? But then uh, the, apparently he has an anger issue. And he doesn't even get in the promised land, right? And the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, ends with the death of Moses. And this is what it says about Moses at the end. It says, to this day, there hasn't been another prophet like Moses. Or in other words, we're still waiting for the guy. Moses wasn't the guy. And we're still waiting for the snake crusher. 
Right? And then King David comes. He's called the anointed. Right? I mean, we could go on all day. Right? We could just go on all day. You, know, you remember that really crazy story about when King David uh, buys the land, plot of land to offer the sacrifice? He intercedes for the people. And then, I mean, it, the pattern is over in the Chronicles, that's in Chronicles 21. Right? He wasn't like, apparently David had a, you know, an issue. You know, he, he got, got caught up in a sex scandal, military conspiracy, right? He wasn't the guy. So here's the deal. Okay, so we made it. Good job. Okay, those are just like a f- fraction of, of what, okay. So we often approach the Old Testament like we do any other religious text. And we think these are examples for us to follow, right? I mean, they did it right. We need to be like Abraham. We need to be like Noah and Moses, David. But if you actually read it, y'all, these families are royally screwed up, like, royally. The authors go out of their way to point out, oh man, he blew it, right? Incest, rape, violence, cheating, lying, all this in God's chosen family. And you realize these are intentionally pointing something out to us. And we learn two things if we'll sit with the Holy Scripture, man. We learn two things at the same time. We learn, number one, a model. We get a mental shelf for what the anointed one will do when he comes. We get a silhouette, so to speak. His role is being delineated. And at the same time, we learn these guys weren't the one. They weren't the one, man, all right? All these stories, y'all, create a silhouette, a silhouette of what the anointed one will do when he comes. And that's just mostly, the, that's just the first five books of the Bible for the most part, right? And then peppered in the prophets and the Psalms are prophecies of this guy, the anointed one, all through it, right? Isaiah 53 speaks of a suffering servant who will be pierced and crushed for our iniquity. You know when Isaiah was written? Like 700 some odd years before Jesus comes on the scene. Have you ever read Isaiah 53? It's remarkable. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear the iniquities. I mean, this is insane. 700 years, right? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall, be, he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes what? Intercession for the transgressors. Psalm 22 almost describes the crucifixion. It is almost 600 years before Christ comes. Um, so we'd be here all day if we just kept going. But Jesus seemed to think it was pretty clear The anointed one's going to suffer. He's going to be raised again on the third day like Jonah, or what Jonah's pointing to, and that this was always about all the nations coming into Eden blessing. Eden like the blessing of God, right? And that the only way anyone could get into that blessing is by forgiveness and repentance and that being made available through the suffering of one. All right. In fact, on the road to Emmaus, uh, some of the disciples are walking and they're really sad. Remember after the crucifixion, right, and the claimed resurrection? They're really sad and they're talking to this guy. They don't know who he is. It's actually Jesus. They're talking to him and they're like, man, we thought Jesus was the guy. We all thought he was the anointed one, the Christ, but he died, you know? And now our ladies are talking crazy about how he's alive and like, and Jesus calls them fools. He says, you foolish men, slow of heart to believe in what? All the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the anointed one to suffer and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in Scripture. Which, this, that was my poor man's attempt to do it earlier, right? I mean, barely scratched the surface. Okay, that was a lot, but what does it mean? Well, apparently, it means that Jesus thought the entire Bible was about one thing, himself. And that means 
the church has one rally cry. One cry. The church has one proclamation, man. The church has one declaration because according to Jesus, the Bible has one. We have one flag, one purpose, right? We broadcast one message and we shout it with the whole of our lives as our lives are being poured out as an offering. Look at me, the message is not us. It's not us, man. It's not me. It's not you. It's not how we like to do things. It's not how we do church. It's not our position on this or that, right? We don't proclaim our righteousness. We don't proclaim the law. We don't even declare judgment, y'all. We wait on that, bro. We wait on that. In fact, part of what we proclaim is an alien righteousness. We proclaim a rightness that we've been given, this pure gift. Isaiah 53, right? Accounted as righteous on the count of another. That any can have that righteousness if they repent and believe the anointed one who crushed the snake, and it wasn't Moses. It wasn't Abraham. It ain't me. It ain't you. It ain't a church movement. It ain't some model of ministry. His name's Jesus. And he is the single flag of the church, the single mission. He is the most beautiful, intelligent, powerful, forgiving, redeeming, delightful, good known to man because he is God himself. There is no other name under heaven which is given in which we can be made whole. There's no other way into the blessing, y'all. There's no other way to heal your soul. God has seen to it. He's seen to it, man. He provided a sacrifice himself, the lamb that was slain, and he took away the arrow of God's wrath by taking it on himself. He's done it. And the words he pronounces in this moment of self-sacrifice is, it is finished. No other religion says that. No other religion. Other religions say strive, strive, work hard, earn more, do the right, you, you can do it, you can do it. Christianity doesn't say that. It says, you, no, sorry, you couldn't do it. Someone else had to do it in your place. And what he's pronounced over you is it's finished. And Jesus, even now, even as we sit here standing at each other, is interceding for us, is mediating for us, man, right? In him, in him, the Eden blessing, heaven has come close to you and is accessible to you in a new way, in him. To be clear, the declaration of the church is not us. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ is Lord. In fact, the only way we come into picture is as servants <laughs> for you, right? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Colossians 1:28 says, we proclaim him. We do not proclaim a way of doing church. We do not proclaim a ministry. We, we, we proclaim him. In short, what are we proclaiming? the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Apparently, the primary preoccupation of the church is declaring the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if the primary occupation is delighting in God's great worth, then the primary proclamation is declaring God's great worth. He himself is both the motivation and the mission, right? <laughs> right? It's, that, it's the beauties of his love that compels us, and it's also the beauties of his love that stands over all other declarations, high over all other flags that he has forgiven out of his faithful love. Or a song of Solomon put, he's brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is? Yeah, dude, the banner, the flag, what stands above all other banners, love. His love, his beauty, his value, his faithfulness, despite our faithlessness. What we see is a radical obsession with the beauties of God in the Bible. People just lose their minds when they see this guy, 
right? I mean, he's like the Moses, you can't see me, you're going to die. And he sees the back of him and his face turns into a nightlight, right? Starts glowing, right? Uh, there is one single obsessive love relationship, if you call yourself a Christian, it is with the great worth of God. That's it. It's what outshadows, outshines, whether or rather, every other proclamation and agenda. We must declare and we must delight. We must do both. And this is why if we only delight ourselves, y'all, we run the risk of being navel-gazing, self-centered, self-focused, gorging ourselves while others starve. We run the risk of becoming consumer Christians. And if we only declare, then we run the risk of being hypocritical Christians, right? Who are not eating the food we're selling. If we only declare and don't delight, we run the risk of dwelling in darkness while attempting to point to the light. I submit to you that the bond of the church through time and space, the eternal transcendent commonality of the people of God is that they are a people who are declaring and delighting in the beauties of Jesus, right? Why? Because Jesus has done for us what, what law, nor politics, nor social club could do. Once we had not received mercy and now we have. So, so Lane, New Testament's going to do the same thing, right? What's the church doing? They're declaring and delighting in the beauties of Jesus, right? What he's done, who he is. Page after page of the New Testament. Read the book, y'all. You got it. It's on your device. Read the book. Every page urging you to see for yourself the worth of Christ. Every page. Man, open it up. And it's pulling you up to a precipice like the Grand Canyon. And it's saying, behold, the glories of the one who has suffered for you. Every page calling you to delight in the beauties of Jesus, the great surpassing value of him above all other delights. Every page calling you to stand at the precipice and see, behold, that's delight. It's making room for the internal work of Christ, right? It's being more excited about his righteousness than our own, right? And the Bible's gonna then it's gonna invite you into God's mission and say, now go tell someone about it, man. Go declare it to the nations, to the peoples. He suffered so you can live, man. He is the motivation and the message, and he always will be. A radical, obsessive love relationship with Jesus and what he's done is marked Christians since there's been such thing as Christians. So let me just, let's wrap it up. All right, let, let me help you real quick before we over-spiritualize this to the point of zero real implications in your life. Let me help you real quick about the idea of declaring. You are already declaring something. You are already doing it. You're already doing it. In fact, most of us are in a pretty consistent pattern of declaring the beauties of something on a regular basis. Please don't over-spiritualize this. This is what it sounds like. Ready? This is what it sounds like. This is what declaring sounds like. Bro, have you seen Stranger Things? Dude, so epic. Like nostalgic, your childhood 80s, right? Did you play Street Fighter 2 growing up? Oh, you're going to love it. It's so good, man, so good. You know what I just did? I declared the great value of Stranger Things. Declared it right before your eyes. Here's what it sounds like. Oh my gosh, have you tried Five Guys? It's so good. Like just imagine the greasiest, juiciest heart attack in burger form, right? Two words, Cajun fries. Say no more, man. Cajun fries. You're hungry for it right now, aren't you? You're going to go to Five Guys after because I said that, right? No, seriously. Dude, oh, here's one for you. Have you tried virtual reality goggles? I'm serious right now. Have you tried them? Raise your hand if you tried virtual reality goggles. I just want to see. Yes. Okay, man. It's the most insane experience ever. It's so sensory. Like, I did it in my living room, and I took them off, and I was bummed to be in my living room. I was like, dude, my living room is so dinky and small. 
You know, I was just like in outer space shooting aliens and I could see for miles, right? I mean, it was epic. I mean, we're doomed. Society's doomed. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's going to kill society. Virtual reality is going to kill us, right? But you should try it, right? It's, <laughs> it, it's amazing, okay? Y'all, look at me. Don't over-spiritualize it. That's declaring the great. You're doing it every day. What if Jesus was that? What, what if he brought me to life from death? Come on, man. I can't get any more excited. I'm maxed out. I'm at 10. I mean, if it's true, if it's true, y'all, if it's true, like why are we declaring the beauties of all this other stuff all the time? Jesus just isn't in that category. He's not. Let's be real. He's just not in the category. We declare all the other stuff all the time, man. If it's true, man, if he brought you out of death into life, you got to tell a brother. Is it true? Look, look, I love you. You, do, you, you. you might not believe it. I'm glad you're here, man. You probably don't believe it. Because if you believed it, man, boy, he's going he's gonna to take over your life. There's no other thing. I mean, that's the thing, y'all. It, it dominates everything. When his love captures you, there's just nothing else you want to talk about. And you're like, that's just radical. Okay, all right, just read, just read the book again. Go back and read Paul. Go back and read how they talked about Jesus. They talked about him like he's the most beautiful, wonderful thing we could ever experience on this side of heaven. Jesus is just not in the category for us, y'all. What if he was? I mean, I know Christianity is a complex thing. Let's be real, all right? We got a lot of history, a lot of stupid mistakes. Christians are weird, right? Like sometimes we just don't want to be associated with it. But dude, what if Jesus was just more brilliant than your aversions? What if, what if he was just more, what if, what if the beauty of the love and forgiveness of God in your heart and life melts down the obstacles? You see, there's one thing I got to be about, man. There's one thing I got to give my life to. And it's him, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean Matt prayed at it, right? Like you could, you could give Every moment of your day from sunrise to sunset, you could wring your life out for the glory of God and it would nowhere be anywhere near adequate to express his beauties to the earth. Man, you could give everything you have and you'd still fall short of declaring his great worth to the world. Man, y'all, what if we did this as a group of friends? 12 dudes did it 2,000 some odd years ago and the world changed. Huh? Change the 12 losers, right? Bad fishermen, right? Like the dudes that no one else would pick changed the world because they were obsessed with what? How awesome they were? No. These new rules that are going to, no. Man, they were obsessed with the beauties of Jesus, the son of, the lamb of God slain to take away the sins of Ransoming men for God from every nation, tribe, and tongue just took over their lives. I'm so far off my notes, I don't even know where I'm at. Let's stand and pray. Come on. Jesus, help us not to miss the point. I just, I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I know I lost it there for a second. Jesus, bring us back in, Lord. Help us not to miss the point, God. God, I pray that our hearts and our minds and our fidelity would be to something greater, Lord. Would you make our lives about something greater than ourselves? God, I'm asking, Lord, that you would start a fire in this place. God, would you just start burning our hearts up for your goodness, Lord? God, just let it flow, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit.
God, set a flame in our hearts right now. God, I pray that you would warm the hardness of our hearts. You'd begin to wear it down with your goodness, Lord. I pray that every corner we look, we'd see your goodness. We just couldn't get away from it. He's chasing after us. Come, Holy Spirit. God, open our eyes to the, your pursuit of us, that you chop down all obstacles. Lord, you would not let anything keep you, you from us. Not even our faith, not even our faithlessness. Not even our, we're running away from you full steam and you're right beside us. Lord, we have never experienced a faithfulness like your faithfulness. Oh, I mean, the whole Bible, just, you're, you're faithful and we are not. And our righteousness, God, our comfort, our joy doesn't come from us, it comes from you. Holy Spirit, come. God, begin just hammering through the barricades that we've put up against your love for us. I don't care what you've done, man. I don't care. I don't care if you're on the, as Tim Keller said, I don't care if you're on the paid staff of hell. God still loves you. He's still coming after you, man. I don't care what darkness you've let in. I don't care. I mean, you might, you might have a mess behind you. Yeah, you probably need to deal with that. But God is saying right now, I love you. Man, I value you as a son, as a daughter. He, nothing you have done has mitigated his love for you in any way, shape, or form. Thank you, God. I, I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that we might receive your love for us.